In 2019, professional darts is on a high. The world's greatest players perform week in, week out to packed arenas in Britain and across the world. On New Year's Day, Michael Van Gerwen was crowned world champion at Alexandra Palace, London, and received the first prize of a whopping half a million pounds. But 30 years ago, darts was in a very different place. The first golden era of the early to mid-80s was well and truly over. The main TV broadcasters were drastically cutting back on their coverage, and the world's top players were struggling to make a living. Within a few years, the world's leading players were to break away from the sports governing body to form a rival organisation. Years of infighting, court battles and feuds would follow. Around this time, Shane Bulldog Burgess, a talented player in his late 20s from Hastings in Sussex, was emerging as one of the world's leading players. He's just released his autobiography, ghostwritten by Tony Horn, called Everybody Gets 15 Quid. More on where that title came from later. His is a story of a player with enormous potential. He was too young to have been part of the 80s boom that made household names of Eric Bristow, John Lowe and Jockey Wilson. And by the time the big money arrived in darts during the 2000s, Shane's game was on the wane. However, he was an integral part of the early years of the Professional Darts Corporation, where he lost in three major finals, all against the great Phil Taylor. But this isn't a downbeat book by any means. It's packed with hilarious anecdotes from the darts scene, a few brushes with the law, and stories of Shane's love of eating roadkill. Yes, this book is very real. I'm Marcus Stead, and I caught up with Shane to discuss his life on and away from the hockey. Shane, if I was to summarise your darts career, I would say that you've been unlucky in two ways. First of all, you had the misfortune to be at your peak around the same period as a certain Philip Douglas Taylor. The second is that you were at your very best when darts was in the doldrums, and in the years when the PDC was laying the foundations for the wonderful things that were to follow. If you were just five years older, you would have been much more of a household name, you started playing in the BDO system in 1988, and in the summer of that year there were cutbacks at BBC Sport. Bowls and rugby league coverage were drastically scaled back, and they announced that after that year's British Professional Championship, they were dropping all of their darts coverage apart from the Embassy World Championship. And then in October of that same year, Greg Dyke at ITV announced that after that year's Winmau World Masters, they were dropping all of their darts coverage. OK, so within a year or two, Satellite TV picked up some of that coverage, but it was very much in its infancy back then and was broadcasting to small audiences. If you had burst onto the scene as an England international just five years earlier, you would have been much more well-known by the public. It was. It would have been. Yeah, it would. I'm not saying um, uh, it would have. Uh, maybe I've gone down a different path. But you're you're exactly right. All they were pulling the plug on all the darts, all the televised darts, and uh, yeah, I just happened to get good when it was going backwards, as it was. Um, uh, yeah, the England um, internationals were televised, mm. and they pulled the plug on that. And then when I was uh, picked, there was 
well, you, you, there was a bit lucky if there was 50, 60 people in the room when we were playing. Really? It, it declined yeah. that much? Because I was looking at yeah. some old BBC schedules from about 1984, 1985, and the old home internationals darts, they used to yeah. go to places like St. David's Hall here in Cardiff, where I live. There were um, uh, larger halls all around England and so forth, and Scotland as well. But by 1988, as the BBC seriously scaled back its coverage, um, it, by the time you made your debut, it really was in the doldrums. It was, it was. Well, it was. well, when I made my debut, was the first England team that had been picked after the the, the lot that split went. Mm. So it lost, the out of the 12-man squad, you probably lost about eight or nine players. So they had to sort of an influx of um, completely... Oh, as it, no, I did make my, my debut when they were playing. I did, yes. Mm. I played the very last game that they all played. Yeah. And then the, sort of the next year... An influx of about eight or ten players, and mm. um, I don't know. The BDO just didn't seem to be capable of um, uh, marketing it right, and um, it was at Lakeside, and mm. it was just it was just completely flat. There yeah. was yeah, yeah, the room was half full, and it was wasn't in any papers or on television or anything. No. Well, that's right because when the BBC had pulled out of covering the uh, England internationals and the home international series, it wasn't shown anywhere at all for several years and then in the very early days of sky they picked it up this was just before the split but you could tell then that darts was well and truly in the doldrums but from this we get the title of your book everybody gets 15 quid tell us how that came about <laughs> uh well yeah uh well i suppose i have to tell the story i suppose yeah um yeah darts like i said it was it was it was i didn't realize how bad it was and uh, so i got picked for england obviously your, your heart's bursting out your chest i've been picked for england you know and um i get up there and you, you just i don't know just treated like a cattle really and um uh they said to me fill out a form to uh, your expenses and all that oh you know yes this i've got a, a, a shirt that didn't fit they didn't seem to care mm. uh trousers that didn't fit and uh, i ended up wearing second-hand shirts second-hand trousers there's a great didn't... story in the book about how you picked your <laughs> pair of trousers tell us that one <laughs> Yeah, well, they, they said they just said there was a great big trunk out the back, and uh, Ollie Croft came out there. I said, "I'm sorry, Ollie, these trousers don't fit." He, I said, "I measured them all up," and uh, he went opened up this big trunk. He went, "Try them on till you find one that fits," and that's all it was. And I tried on about thirty pairs of old trousers from the seventies, and they, mm. <laughs> they were all flared and whatever. And I ended up settling on a. Uh, they had Bobby George written in the lining, but they had no, <laughs> the pockets had been cut out. Mm. And, uh, you could tell that they were like well worn, and uh, I ended up wearing them for my debut. Well, this, this is quite something. So, to, to look at the timeline of this, then, what year would that have been? Ninety two, ninety three ish. Yeah, it was ninety three. I think it was. Yeah, 93. yeah. It, it, it would have yeah. been because for those of a certain age, I mean, I'm only thirty five, but I know my history when it comes to darts. The yeah. World Championship began in what 1977 people think it was created by ollie croft it actually wasn't it was created by a friend of mine who died earlier this year mike watterson the same man who took the world snooker championship to the crucible and there was a darts boom from the late 70s into the early 80s and you would have been watching this on television when you were young uh eric bristow john lowe bobby george jockey wilson who you say was the big favorite in your household and then obviously we get towards the end of the decade and as i mentioned a moment ago Greg Dyke pulled the plug on ITV darts coverage. 
um, because it, it was largely because I think advertisers weren't happy with the image of the drinking and the smoking on the stage, and also because Greg Dyke had to save a bit of money at ITV Sport at that time, and at the same time at the BBC, as I mentioned, Nick Hunter... Um, the BBC producer who ran um, certain sports from BBC North. There were big cutbacks there as well, and darts, bowls, and rugby league were all scaled back quite considerably. So you really, you'd worked hard through the 1980s playing at Sussex level, and then you switched to play in Kent. We'll come on to that a little bit later. But you were really coming into your own at a time when darts was at its lowest ebb, I think. It really was. It really was at its lowest ebb, yes. Honestly, I... No one, uh, um, I let's say I lived down in Hastings, and um, no one seemed to know that the internationals were on. It was, like I said, unless you were an avid, avid dart follower, mm. it, it just wasn't out there, you know. And um, so the venue was half full. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, they was they, I think the B, they were just waiting for those 16 to come back, I think. Mm. Just, mm. oh, they'll be back any day now, you know. And not really bothering with anybody else because if they'd have come back, they'd have um, chucked us us lot out the England team again and had most of them back in again. I know they would, you know. So uh, the, the sad thing is, Shane, that you were you were. This should have been a very exciting time of your life, picked for England, playing well, and everything that went with it. But the problem was that there was all this nasty stuff going on in the background now i'm a i was been a little bit too young to fully appreciate what was going on at the time i was what nine years old when that was happening but i became much more aware of it years later um there's footage on youtube of the the last unified world championship at the lakeside what 1993 the year alan warrener beat um, john lowe in the final and i'm uh, just looking at the tone of the bbc coverage then you could tell there was a lot going on in the background with regards because the wdc is the split of originally was the WDC had already existed they had already had some tournaments on regional ITV Tynties Yorkshire and Anglia all showed a tournament each and players at that 1993 lakeside those who were on the WDC were wearing WDC um, patches on their shirts and the powers that be at the BDO ordered them to rip those off and okay you weren't a WDC man at that time but it can't have been a very nice atmosphere at the lakeside around that time no, no. Well, I, I wasn't at Lakeside then. I was, I was, I got in the year after. Um, I was actually, I mean, they probably did not, but I, I got a phone call saying I was in. I'm in, and mm. um, uh, they decided because Jockey Wilson and Eric Bristol hadn't qualified for that very last one, mm. and I think it was me and Ronnie Baxter. We were both told we were in, and all of a sudden the phone didn't ring anymore. I thought, well, what's happening? It's getting near the World Championships. I'm, I'm in it, and mm. I. And, it never rung again, and I wasn't in it. They mm. put Eric and Jockey in, you mm. know, mm. at mine and Ronnie's expense. Mm. So uh, as, as wild cards, so I got, I got um, dumped from a great height there as well, you know. So that that's not re- okay. I've got a great respect for Eric and Jockey what they achieved yeah. in the game. But you look at it. Eric's last final was in 1990 against Phil Taylor. That was the, the the big clash they had on the lakeside stage. Eric's Dartitis was pretty bad by that stage yeah. uh, within a year or two. So he actually didn't qualify and neither did Jockey, but you were, you would have been there on merits, but you were dropped to make way for them. Yeah, yeah. I was I was told I was in it. I'm in the top 32. Hmm. Like I said, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was me and Ronnie Baxter and we got overlooked and decided to put two wild cards in hmm. at the last minute. And... Uh, because the BDO used to change the rules every year and put in whoever they wanted, and mm. oh, you could never tell who was in what and when. It, but uh, 
uh, yeah, yeah. So I got overlooked then. Then I did actually get picked for England when they were all in. And then obviously I was one of the last three or four remaining the next year in the England squad. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and the big thing that comes across in the book is the sheer amateurism of the way the England setup and the international setup was run. You've just told us a funny anecdote about the trousers, but the shirts looked ridiculous. They didn't fit. Um, you weren't really looked after. Uh, everybody gets fifteen quid. Now, let's expand on that. What is that really all about? You were paid fifteen quid for representing your country, and you got a, a voucher for a chicken dinner. Nothing more. That was the honour of playing for England. That's that's the truth. Yes, uh, they told us to fill out a um, an expenses form. So I had a day off work, and I drove myself up there. They said in a letter, "Don't go too mad because funds are tight." And well, yeah, I can understand that. Hmm. So I think I I filled in. I don't know, really about hundred quid, something like that. I tried to be as frugal as I could, hmm. and I get there, gave the filled out form to this lady sitting at the desk, and she just gives me an envelope of fifteen quid, and I went, uh, "What's this?" And then hmm. she said. Well, everybody gets 15 quid but she put the expenses thing into a you know a box so i mean yes you know that they're going to put those through those put their books oh, yeah. so that they could uh, have the money away themselves mm. but you know you're playing for your country mm. and you've got a shirt and trousers that don't fit 15 quid and chicken and chips at the bar yeah let, let's 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 expand on this a little bit because there was a documentary made by the BBC um in the very late 1990s I think it was it was part of their series Blood on the Carpet and it was um the early years of the BDO BD, PDC split um the WDC for those who don't know was had was renamed the PDC after a court case about 5 years later but this, this, all this was going on in the background. And the, the one thing uh, Ollie Croft was interviewed in this BBC programme I mentioned, and his late wife Lorna was still alive at the time. And the, the thing that struck me about Ollie Croft, that there was a stubbornness about him, and it was my way or the highway. There was yeah. no room for compromise. There was no room for new ideas or new suggestions. There was no way that he was just going to sort of take a, a, a sort of presidential role, if you like, and allow the day-to-day -day running to be done by other people. Um this is a very stubborn man and very autocratic the way he ran the BDO at that time, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, you, uh, yeah, you never upset Ollie. You don't, don't upset Ollie. Don't say nothing to Ollie. And, oh, mm. he used to walk, I'm not, I mean, I never had any bad words with him. He used to walk around, but yeah, he, he uh, yeah, it was, it, they have these meetings and there was nothing democratic about it, mm. <laughs> apparently. Like what he said went and that was it. He bit of a bit of a, uh, Donald Trump forerunner, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because when, when the WDC first formed, it was most of the top players of that era. And their idea originally was for them to run their tournaments within the BDO uh, WDF framework. WDF is the World Darts Federation, for those yeah. who don't know the body um, that runs Global Darts, which Ollie Croft was also very heavily involved in. Um, and then... Ollie Croft was saying, no, I'm not going to hand over any control to you guys whatsoever. And then things filtered down, didn't they, in that um, WDC players, it got so bitter around about that time, 92, 93, that they weren't even allowed to play at uh, county Super League level, were they? No, I wasn't. I got, I got, well, this is a bit of a, um, bit of a, uh, you were saying about this split. Bit, I've been wanting to get this off my chest for a while, really. Hmm. You had the 16, um, players originally that went and okay to be honest out of those 16 so-called professionals only about four or five of them were most of them were hmm. working or or unemployable i uh 
uh, and then really it was only it was Dick Alex and uh, Tommy Coxon and whoever they were involved with. They're the ones who put there because they probably would have they would have um, gone skin if, if it all gone you know yeah barely up. But all the players would have just gone back with their tail between their legs and they'd have been back you know. Mm. But it was my gripe is the second wave of players, the second wave because you need you need thirty two players to make a tournament mm. and. They needed more players, and it wasn't if it wasn't for the likes of me, Graham Stoddart, Mick Manning, Dennis Smith, mm. uh, Mark Thompson, Steve Raw, uh, Chris Mason is one. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it's the second wave of players that saved. I'm not blowing my own trumpet, but saved the uh, the WDC as it was then. Mm. Um, without that second wave, they'd have had no 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 tournaments at all. You can't have a tournament with 16 players. It would have been a a joke. I, I think you're right, Shane, and I'll tell you why. Yeah. That very first WDC World Championship in 1994, you look at who was there. Okay, you had every previous world champion there had been, apart from Leighton Reese, who wasn't playing competitive darts by that stage. But yeah. everybody else, uh, Eric Bristow, John Lowe, Jockey Wilson, uh, Keith Deller, Bob Anderson, they had all made the switch as the WDC originally. The other 16 or so places were... I think, if memory serves me rightly, mainly American players who no one had heard of. Yeah, there was an Irishman, Tom Kirby, hmm. and there was mostly Americans. Yeah, bulked it out with Americans that they, their organisation used to let them play and not ban them. So they, yeah, they bulked it all out with Americans. And none of them, they were good players, but they, hmm. none of them had stage experience. And uh, really, they, they were like, um, it's like shooting fish in a barrel for the for the big boys, you know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, um, it was, that was it. And you, they needed an influx mm. of talent. Mm. Otherwise, it would have died in the water. And there's and, a slightly uncomfortable aspect to this as well, because that very first WDC World Championship at the Circus Tavern in Essex, Keith Deller, I don't think, had qualified for the BDO World Championship for several years by that stage. No. You've just mentioned to me Eric Bristow and Jockey Wilson relying on wild cards in the, in the last Unified World Championship in 93. So with the greatest of respect to these individuals, many of the, even those 16, several of them were already past their prime. They were, they were. A lot of them were. Well, yeah, a lot of them, well, a lot of them were, um, a lot of them picked their game up uh, during the early years because they had to. But um, mm. yeah, a lot of them, their game was in the doldrums, the same as everything else. And yeah, a lot of them were... Um, were they? Uh, they were on their way down, really, on their way down, sliding down. And you had, you had Phil, and Dennis Priestley, mm. Bob Anderson could still throw a good dart. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah, they needed they needed an influx of talent, and um, and mm. people like me and Chris Mason and Co provided that, and and then it made for good tournaments. Yeah. So that that happened then, and you obviously made your England debut. It was obviously part of the BDO system. At what point? in the mid-1990s, did you decide that the PDC system was right for you and this would be the best way forward? What was the big turning point for you? The big turning point was money. Money. Because there mm. was no money in the in the BDO system at all. Mm. Uh, and when someone says, uh, if you join the, the WDC, and they'll give you £500 just for turning up, and you think, Christ, that's a king's ransom. Yeah. And I thought, I've got to have some of this. Mm. <laughs> mm. But on the other hand, it was a bad move because I was in—I uh, jumped into Phil Taylor territory, mm. and he just dominated. Oh, he just—he just robbed us blind for years. It was—you know—you can't knock him at all. He was fantastic, and uh, 
Yeah, because there's there's a great story in the book um, about when when you were tempted to join the WDC slash PDC. Um, so you were having a conversation with somebody, and he said, "Oh, you'll love it over here, Shane. We're like one big happy family." And then in the, just right behind you, well, you tell us what happened. What did? You yeah, say? yeah, it was um, it was Graham. Uh, it was Graham Stoddart. He said, "Oh, he joined, and he said you've got to come here." He said, "The money's good, and everybody gets on, and we'll people." And as he was saying it, there's a table, big table behind me, and then Phil Taylor <laughs> jumped across the table and had Pete Dell around the throat. <laughs> and what it was, because I didn't really know any of them then, you know. I I was in the England team with them. They only just used to say hello to me, most of them, yeah. but. Um, uh, they were what they were. They were doing because they all came over as equals. Mm. They were establishing a pecking order, really, mm. and <laughs> it was arguing among. Because you see, you had all those former world champions, mm. and um, you know, Phil was obviously. They all knew Phil was going to be the, the man to beat, but uh, mm. yeah, they was all arguing amongst themselves. And I think you had a bit of a pecking order to sort out the first couple of years. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah, it, 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 I wasn't aware that there was ever any bad blood between Phil Taylor and Keith Della, but uh, that... no, no, it's not really, not really, not not at all. It, it's just just beer and and you sure. know, like, uh, yeah, it's stuff happens, doesn't it? Yeah, bands that it was getting out of hand, really. Yeah, but, but yeah. We, we, going on to the subject of money, so even in the WDC slash PDC in the very early years, there, I think prize money for winning at the Circus Tavern in Essex, the World Championship, was about £14,000 first prize at one time. And I know that Phil Taylor and Dennis Priestley, the top two players in the world at that time, used to share prize money just to make sure that the two of them could make a reasonable living. So if that was the, the, the very top of the tree, and it was at that time, let's not forget Dennis won that first um, WDC World Championship. Yeah. Um, how hard was it for the rest of you in those early years where I think... What was it now? Either Dick Alex or Tommy Cox. I think it was Tommy remortgaged his house to try and get all this thing off the ground. Various players made financial investments in it to try and get it off the ground. Um, how hard was it for you at that time? You were still doing a day job, weren't you, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was still working. I was. Um, I used to be a, a plasterer's labourer or tarmac in the roads. So I used to work on the council. So it was very hard because, you see, even though the WDC were offering a bit more money. It wasn't the living at, mm. at all. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was um, just, well, I was working wherever I could and fitting in the darts where I could. Mm. You try and get jobs that will give you a, a, a lot of time off if you need it, you know. Yeah. And, um, you know, yeah, it worked all right. And then, yeah, yeah, I was, we was doing it. Because we was in America a lot, because we were banned from here. I was mm. banned from County, Super League. You couldn't play anywhere unless you played tournaments really and we were in america every other weekend playing in their tournaments and uh, let, let's let's focus on this at the moment because obviously you made the switch to the wdc slash pdc and it was still a wdc at that time it became yeah. the pdc in about 97 98 i think after the tomlin order court case but um you, you obviously you'd made it on television you were an england international before you made the switch what was it like at county level at that time people you'd known for years and yet you weren't allowed to play darts there anymore. How hard was that for you? Yeah, it was it was extremely hard. I went to um, Super League one night. I always remember. went to Super League and my captain, who uh, bloke, uh, Mark Green, who I've known for years, he still plays now. He doesn't play Super League, but he plays now. Mm. Very good friend of mine. Went to the Super League game on a Wednesday night. 
and he said um i've had a letter from the bdo says that i'm i'm not allowed to play you tonight that you're a band player so uh so i said well yeah i said so you've ripped it up you've you've ripped it up and you're not going to take any notice of that put me in you know i don't think i can i said don't be silly don't be silly how many years have i known you Mm. just just take no notice of it and put me in the team Mm. anyway he never put me in. He never put me in. They all, everybody was quaking in their boots. As mm. I, I don't know what they think was going to happen, but yeah, yeah well, I, I travelled to tournaments and I'd travel like fifty miles to a tournament, walk in, and the bloke at the desk was shaking his head. I'm sorry, Shane. He said, "I'm afraid you're going to have to uh, go back home. You're not playing today." And you think, "Well, why are you?" He said, "You're running an open tournament here." Mm. Oh no, I've had. I've had threats from the BDO, and oh, it was terrible. <laughs> this this was the extent to which Ollie Croft's influence um, extended at that time, um, yeah. and, and many many players who were involved in the early years of the WDC PDC will say exactly the same sort of thing. Lots of friendships were really tested. People you'd known for years were afraid to speak to you yeah. anymore, and also in those in that early time, and you'll remember this: those who split in the first wave WDC PDC. Um, Mike Gregory and Chris Johns ended up going back. Um, they were made all sorts of offers by the BDO that ultimately came to nothing. And Mike said just a few years ago that he regrets going back. But they were trying to play players off each other, weren't they? They were. They were. Yeah. I mean, that is a big mistake that Mike going back. Mike was. Uh, oh, one. He's, he's Mike is one of the most undersung, undersung heroes of darts. Mm. He's a, a fantastic player. Mm. And um, yeah, he'd have gone on to great things um, if uh, if he'd have stayed. He went back, mm. and I don't know what, what 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 they were promised or whatever. But Chrissy Johns only played for another couple of months, I think. And That's right. Just sort of drifted out of it, and and um, Mike sort of I don't know how they treated him, but he, he lost his mojo a bit, didn't he? He lost his game. And well, M- Mike tells a story bit. now that when he went back to the BDO, certain BDO officials were less than welcoming towards him anyway because he'd split and come back. So they, he wasn't exactly welcomed back with open arms by a lot of people. And the other thing it did, which is very unfortunate, is that it really strained his friendship with Eric Bristow. Yeah, yeah, probably, probably. Mm. Yeah, he should, yeah, he's, he's, the, he's the one. He shouldn't, Chrissy John's say. You know, he was a good player at the time, but he, you know, he, he didn't really last the course. But mm. Mike was Mike was a, he made a big mistake there, and I think he realises that now. You know, yeah, yeah. Anyway, you you you're now in the WDC PDC set, and we will call it the PDC from this point onwards because what yeah. happened was there was a court case, and to cut a long story short, I won't go into all the technicalities on a podcast, but. They were told that players were free to switch between the two organisations. There was to be no restriction of trade, um, but the WDC didn't have the right to have the word "world" in its governing in its uh, names. They changed it from the WDC World Darts um, Council to PDC Professional Darts Corporation. So you're now very much part of the PDC setup. There was a, one of the big changes of dynamic if you like was the tone of the sky coverage it was very different to what had gone on um in in the the bdo and the lakeside and so forth sky was razzmatazz it was coming out to music there was smoke machines in the early days there were all sorts of gimmicks there was i think on one occasion bob anderson came out riding a horse uh, the limestone cowboy um there was phil jones and his over-the-top introductions as mc um there was lights music you name it and then you're on stage playing 
How much of an adjustment was it for you as a player to get used to this very different setting? Uh, well, well, I mean, I, I don't actually played once in the World Championships, uh, so I, I uh, television was relatively new to me. Mm. So it was like that was that was my beginning. So I didn't really know any different, but. Mm. It was it was brilliant. It was we loved all the the, the girls and the, they used to come on with flags in the beginning. That's right. Have, yeah, a couple of girls with flags. Mm. Um, yeah, we used to have a, a a bookie called Bob the Dog. I don't know if you remember. <laughs> he used to uh, do a bit of um like oh he used to do a bit of banter about who's going to beat who and he should say the odds and it was always oh, really easy to go out in the back room and you know who's going to win this one Bob the Dog. They, it was really good. It was and. Mm. Uh, um, yeah, we loved it. Everybody loved it. Everybody loved it, you know. But you had this this staunch BDO lot that, you know, they were drifting over ever so slowly. You had two or three every year. Mm. After about two or three years, Peter Manley came across. And then after that, uh, um, Ronnie Baxter came across. And then you had, um, yeah, Dave Askew. Mm. They were slowly, slowly drifting over. You know, well, that's right, because there were certain players who weren't quite sure what to do with themselves. Because, like, Chris Mason, I get on very well with Chris, but Chris yeah. went BDO, PDC, back to the BDO, and then back to the PDC again, didn't he? Yeah. That, yeah. that was an example. Um, again, Richie Burnett, there was another one. When he was at his peak on the lakeside stage, um, during most of the rest of the year, he was playing PDC, wasn't he? Uh, so yeah. there, there was a strange setup there. Um, certain players didn't really commit or didn't quite know what to do with themselves. And playing on the PDC tour was quite a commitment even then, wasn't it? It was. It was a commitment, yeah. You, you were, uh, yeah, you were treated like a leper in the BDO, you know. But I say, once I went PDC, I, I don't flit about there, there and everywhere, you know. I just made the change and I just stayed where I was and... Um, mm. Yeah, I just, mm. just, just played their circuit and I loved it, loved it. Well, to give to give you an idea for those who aren't aware of this, the, the, the extent of the animosity, it was quite possible as we came towards the end of the 1990s that players that stayed in the BDO system sometimes used to play PDC at the World Match Play in Blackpool in the summer. And you'll remember this very well, players like Martin Adams and Ronnie Baxter came across. Um, and uh, there's a story Rod Harrington tells of... Um, it was it was one year at the uh, at, at, I think it was 1999 1998 1999 the World Match Play Finals Ronnie back Ronnie Baxter against Rod Harrington and as was as Rod Harrington was coming out to his entrance music ZZ Top Sharp Dressed Man I think it was he was coming onto the stage and um, a PDC official winked at him and said that was that wink he gave him was him, his way of saying for crying out loud Rod win this one for the PDC they did not want to be seen to be losing one of their major t- trophies the world match play to a BDO player no no uh, that that year you're on about as well i had martin adams in the first round mm. and uh, it was there was it was ronnie and martin Every, everyone said, get them out got to be good and anyway, i beat martin first round mm. we had a blinding game he went to the tie break everything blinded game yeah anyway i beat martin and he never played uh, pdc again he went back mm. and uh yeah, yeah ronnie made the final but uh yeah there was a there was a little bit of animosity there for a while but then ronnie mm. came over full time but martin never came back again you know well he was mr bdo wasn't he well into yeah. the 2000s even into the 2010s but you yeah. also had a situation i've heard PDC players have said to me in the past that when they visited the lakeside as a social occasion even they were given a less than warm welcome by BDO officials shall we say yeah oh yeah I've, 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 I've always been alright so like I said I, I didn't chop and change 
everyone knew what they got with me. I went, and that mm. was it. And I've never, I've never had any animosity towards me. Mm. Uh, not, never. Only that initial when we were banned, you know. Mm. But people weren't nasty towards me at all. I just, you know, people say, "I'm sorry, mate, you can't play." I just, just shrug my shoulders and go home. Say it was your loss, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you didn't get it as bad as some people did. Then. No, no, I didn't. I didn't get. I didn't get into the politics of it. I just wanted to play darts, really, and mm. I mm. picked my side and I stayed with my side, and you know, it either worked or it didn't, and it worked. Mm. But unfortunately, mm. the money didn't get good until the. You know, mid two thousands, really. Well, that's right. We'll come on to that in a sec. Yeah. Now, one of the big bugbears I have about people in sport when they say, "Oh, it's an honour to play for your country." I don't know if you're a rugby union man, but here in Wales, we got this situation now where the Welsh rugby union is trying very hard to keep its players playing club rugby inside Wales rather than going for big money contracts in England or even France. And they're, they're, they're trying to say, "Oh, you've got to have X number of Welsh caps," and there's all sorts of funny rules there now. Um, I always say, look. If I was a rugby player in Wales now, I would say, look, I'm going to go where I can get the most money because my career is short and any time my career could end due to injury. And my first priority is to provide for myself, my wife, my children, keep a roof over our heads, pay the mortgage. That has to take priority. Now, you were kind of in a similar situation when you were still at the BDO. Oh, it's an honour to play for England. Here's your 15 quid and your chicken dinner. But that's just not real life, is it? You know, you have to pay your bills and pay your way in life like everybody else. Yeah, yeah. I honestly thought I was. I honestly thought that um, playing for England would lead to other things, lead to maybe some exhibitions or hmm. lead to an invite into something, but... Hmm. There was nothing happening at the time. There was yeah, just... but you know why, don't you? Because you weren't on the telly. No, that's it. That's the general exactly public it. wouldn't have had yeah. a clue who you were. No, they didn't. They didn't. Hmm. In fact, that night, I played for England that night. I drove myself back to Hastings and went in the pub. Hmm. And, and no one even knew that I had an England. Because I still had my England kit on. Hmm. I didn't even know what it was. Like I said, some bloke thought I worked for McDonald's. You remember what McDonald's used to wear red and white before they wear they wear green and grey now. Hmm. They used to wear red and white with red flares, and I looked like I worked in McDonald's. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, this is all in the book, and I'm not surprised because yeah. they were pretty hideous England uniforms yeah, to they wear were. in they those were days. But anyway, you're firmly on the PDC side, and as we get towards the late 1990s, your game is really starting to pick up in a major way. And then 1999, Rochester, not too far from where you're from, World Grand Prix, slightly different format, double in, double out. So you have to start your leg by hitting a double. And to this day, every year, there's at least one player who forgets that and gets a no score, don't they, early on for the referee? Every year we see that. But that year, let's look at it quarterfinals you beat Dennis Priestley 3-0 Dennis was just about still at top of his game at that time yeah. semi-finals you you had a thrilling match there didn't you against Peter Manley 5-4 yeah. and then you reached the final oh yeah. dear who's next in front of you a certain Mr Taylor yeah 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 he I had Oh, well, he was in every bloody final. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. There, there were was three like... certainties in those days, death, taxes and Phil Taylor. That was life, <laughs> yeah, there wasn't it? Was, there was, there was. There were some players, uh, like Alan Warren has won a televised tournament, Peter Manley has, Colin Lloyd's won a few. Mm. Uh, not knocking their ability one bit, because they're fantastic players. Mm. But they're, you know, they were lucky enough to get to a final without filling it, you know. Mm. And, you know, if I'd have just got to one of those finals yeah. without filling it, I swear I'd have won one. But every final I got to, 
there was that man standing there, and I just didn't have the uh, I didn't have the game to beat him. But but here's the thing, Shane. If you had won that, I've looked this up now. If you had won that final in 1999 in Rochester, do you know what your first prize would have been? Uh, not an awful lot. I'll tell not, you. I'll tell you. Yeah, I'll nothing. T- yeah, that's it. Nothing. No. Nothing. Nine thousand yeah. pounds. Oh, was it? Yeah. Well, it because I did. I mean, there was a rumour. This is only a rumour, but I heard when so the next year, you know, I lost the final to him again. Hmm. Two two years on the trot, it was me and him in the. Final. That's right. Yeah, and the one in Ross Lair, someone did tell me that it was he got. They didn't have actually any money to pay the winner. They offered him shares, so I got my runners up money. Hmm. And Phil just got shares in the PDC because he didn't have any money. Well, the, the, it said in theory the prize the prize that following year two thousand was meant to leap up to fifteen thousand pounds, but um, you reckon that didn't happen then. No, no, no. I, I don't know. It was a, just a rumour. Mm. I've never asked Phil about it. Mm. Uh, I don't know. I don't know the ins and outs of it, but mm. um, he was the major shareholder at one point. Mm. <laughs> Where did he get all these shares from? But uh, they didn't offer me shares. I just, I think I got £3,500 for losing in the final. Yeah, so so not bearing in mind, in those days, there were three televised tournaments. There was the World Championship at the Circus Tavern, Perfleet Essex. There was the World Match Play in Blackpool in the summer, where it still is. And yeah. the World Grand Prix in Dublin in the uh, early autumn, or, or uh, that, somewhere, somewhere in yeah. Ireland, wasn't it, most years? They had a couple of little ones. They had a couple of, little of um, uh, local ones, local, like, northeast ones. Uh, that one they played on the quad board. Ah, ah. Now, yeah. what, what you're saying there, they're... That was going back to the very, very early days, even before the split had formally happened. I know exactly what happened there. There were three tournaments on regional ITV from about 1992 until about 1995 at the latest. There was one on Anglia, one on Yorkshire, and one on Tyne Tees. And I think the Tyne Tees one was on the quad board, where there was a quadruple 20. There's some yeah. footage of that on YouTube, but that was played at the old Tyne Tees studios in Newcastle in front of a tiny-ish audience, really. Um, I played in that. I played in that. I yeah. was in that. Yep. Yeah. Um, that that wouldn't have gone on any later than about '95, I don't think. No, no. Um, Guess who beat me? Well, I never. <laughs> yeah, and, and it, it, it. But from then on, it was exclusively on Sky for many years. The only, um, the only PDC-sanctioned darts that was anywhere other than Sky was that clash in 1999 at the old Wembley Conference Centre between the two world champions, Phil Taylor and yeah. Raymond Van Barneveld. But ap- cool. apart from that, PDC was exclusively on Sky. So you had your three Excuse tournaments me, yeah. a year. Yes, um, and right. but but things were starting to pick up. This is when your game was really at its peak, nineteen ninety nine, two thousand, uh, up until about two thousand and three. Um, the problem was, I turned eighteen in two thousand and one, and we didn't have Sky at home at that stage. So I used to go to pubs, and I used to have to say to the barman, I said, "Please, can you put Sky Sports on? There's darts on." And most people in the pub were not really that aware of it. Um, the trouble is, unless you had Sky and you were really into darts, you wouldn't have been all that aware of what was going on. And I remember I used to do things like round about Christmas, New Year time, I'd go to the pub in that week between Christmas, New Year, say, no, can you put Sky Sports on, the darts is on. And then someone would come alongside me, someone I didn't know at the bar, and they'd say, oh, is this the big embassy one then? I said, no, no, this is the PDC World Championship. The embassy's not for another week yet. Um did you know most of the best players have split and come over to the the PDC now? And most people, I have to be honest with you, Shane, most people didn't know what I was talking about. No, they didn't. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't. And, you know, and I used to go, 
oh, he's around everywhere. Oh, I'm, the World Championships is on. I'm, I'm in the World Championships. And everyone you say, oh, I haven't got Sky. I haven't got Sky. I mm. can't afford Sky. Mm. You know, and the, the, out of, out of, let's say, a thousand people I knew, there was about 50 of them that were actually watching it, you know. Mm. And, and, you, and also you say about YouTube, there's very little footage of any of those games. Mm. Uh, this, it's, it's like... Um, Dark, it's like the dark ages, isn't it? There's more footage of 80s darts than there is of 90s darts. Yeah, I tell you what, there used to be a bit more than there is now. I think certain people have put in copyright claims and had YouTube videos taken down. There used to be oh, a right. bit more than there is now because, yeah. um, again, I, I watched you know the, the, the very first world um, final at the Circus Tavern. And just, you, know, you had the Sky coverage presented by David Bobin and then Jeff Stelling. Um, the very first World Championship, the commentary was Dave Lanning and John Gwynn. Sid Waddell, people don't remember this, but Sid Waddell didn't actually join until um, Blackpool in um, the summer of 94. To begin with, Sid stayed with the BBC at the BDO coverage. Yeah, yeah. People yeah. sometimes forget that now. Um, yeah. But Sky really did take the coverage onto a different level. But unfortunately, in those days, it would have been seen by small audiences. It wasn't until the late 2000s that ITV really got on board with PDC darts when they started covering the Grand Slam of darts. So your successes, good though they were, and there's some terrific footage of you taking out a 170 against Phil Taylor on YouTube. That is on there. But it was, I'm afraid, seen by quite small audiences. It was. It was. It was. It's, it's, it's very, extremely rare, extremely mm. rare footage, 90s darts. It is. Mm. Uh, and um, I'm, this is what I'm surprised with this book. I'm, I'm, this book, I'm, I'm surprised that people remember me. You know, you, you only people only remember like the, the winners or someone who's hit a nine dart from the nineties or mm. something like that. You know, mm. there's a lot of players that have gone by the boy who think you know, people say who's like Mick Manning. People say Mick Manning. Who's that? Then? You know, Mick yeah. Manning was on television every other week. You know, yeah, but, yeah. yeah. No, well, well Mick, Mick was a good player in in his own right, but. Um, I think one of the things, again, there was an interview with the late Phil Jones, the, the late MC um, from the early days of PDC Darts, and he says one of the big sadnesses of the era around about the split is that he said he knew players who would have been about the same age as you at the time who pretty much chucked in darts or chucked in ambitions to turn professional. And he said that this was a time where you should have been saying to some of the old guard, right, it's time for you to get out of the way, we're coming through. And they were lost from darts forever because of all that was going on and the inability to make a living. Yeah, it was it, true. You're right. You're exactly right. There was a lot of talented players about, a lot of players um, who just, yeah, just fell by the wayside. Um, yeah, because there, there, was, there, was, there was nothing in it. There was, I mean, people want families. You've got kids to feed and mortgages to pay mm. and you've got a wife nagging you and you go out and bring home 20 quid. That ain't no good. So you just go out and get a job, don't you? Of course. The dark team, of course. Know? Yeah. But we yeah. move on. We move on then to two thousand and three, which was your last major final, the UK Open, which would have been at Bolton at that time, I think. And um, yeah. looking at it now, who you beat there? You beat Colin Monk ten eight in the quarterfinals. Colin is best known as um, a BDO player. He played at the yeah. Lakeside for many many years. Yeah. And then you were involved in another match in the semi-finals, another close one against a player who's gone by the wayside a little bit, um, Paul Williams. Yeah. Um, but you yeah. came through that, so you had two really tough contests. And then what happens next? Who do you bump into in the final <laughs> yet again? Yeah, yet again, yet again, and um, yeah, uh, oh, oh, unbelievable, unbelievable. I've honestly thought this is my day. This mm. is I'm going to have him today, and I started off really well. I, it probably 
the best game that I gave him in a the final. Then, mm. like I said, one seventy finish, and I started to come back at him a little bit, but he, oh, he doesn't let you off. Bill, mm. mm. he's there's no, um, no, he won't give you, he won't, he won't. There's no Christmases in there. He's out. Oh, well, well <laughs> I, I've got mixed thoughts on this because on the one hand, you could argue that if Phil Taylor wasn't around, you'd be a far wealthier man because you would have won several big finals at least and probably reached the finals of a lot more stuff. The second is, though, there's another side to this coin. If it wasn't for Phil being the flag bearer of the PDC for what was effectively its first two decades, because he was at the top for a very long time, would darts be where it is today? So there's another side to that, that however frustrated you may feel about Phil dominating, he did set the standard. He he did, and and the same goes with all sports. Uh, sports don't really survive. You must have a dominator. You must have your Man United and your Michael Schumacher's mm. and your Tiger Woods. You must have them mm. for because uh, they're they're on a pedestal. They're there to be knocked down, but they very rarely do get knocked down. Mm. And that's what makes sport interesting, you know. And um, yeah, unfortunately, I was around. Mm. Uh, just there to pick up the crumbs, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, yeah it, it, we wouldn't be we wouldn't be where we were. We wouldn't be where we are without Phil Taylor and Eric Bristol. Uh, absolutely agree with that. And of course, both of them yeah. had slightly spiky personalities on times. It's fair to say. I'm yeah. aware that both have done a lot of good along the way. By the way, so I'm, I'm not being overly critical. How did you find Phil on a personal level? Because different players give me a different impression of him as a person. How was he with you? Phil, Phil's. Yeah, really. He's, he's, he was um, he was so single-minded hmm. about darts that he was he was quite boring, really. He's he's uh, hmm. he he used to either talk about his bog handles or or uh, he didn't really have. Hmm. Uh, I don't think he led much because he was pretty hard up in the early days. I don't think he led, led much of an exciting life really hmm. before darts. Hmm. But talk about focus. I mean, just totally focused, totally and utterly focused. Yeah, so he, he he wasn't an enemy then, but he wasn't much of a one for having many close friends, was he? Not really, not really. It was him and Dennis, just him and Dennis. They used to sit there playing um, crib with matchsticks and stuff mm. like that. And I'm thinking, you know, there's two like near millionaires sitting there <laughs> playing crib with matchsticks. And, it, mm. and mm. you know, and uh, yeah, say, I, I got on well with Phil, you know, no, no, there was no bad words or nothing at all, nothing yeah. at all. You know. That's good, because I, I know he's given... A, there's a player I know locally who's trying to break through through Q School at the moment, and Phil gave him a lot of encouragement. So he he, he has got that side to him as well. He, he will yeah. encourage people. Um, but there's one big contribution in relation to you and Phil. You've made a lasting legacy to the game, and that is the exclusion zone. And this came about because on one occasion you thought Phil was standing a bit close to you, and you suggested a sort of double hockey, if you like, where there's an exclusion zone where you must stand outside it when the other person's throwing. You were ignored at the time, but hey, presto, a few years later. It did, yeah. I mean, like I said, they'll probably deny that I actually did suggest it, but I did. We used to have we used to have these regular um, PDC, these meetings where anybody could... Um, uh, um, you used to, they used to pay out a finder's fee if you if you if you could get a sponsor or if you came up with a good idea, anything to promote the game. Hmm. And and one particular session, I did say, I said, what what we want is an hockey behind the hockey. We want two hockeys hmm. because a lot of people were moaning that Phil was clipping their heels. Phil was he was actually standing in. As soon as you moved out of your footsteps, he was in there, you know, hmm. and he was a bit overbearing at times, hmm. not deliberately. He was just just 
focused, you know. And I said, what it needs is, yeah, it needs an hockey that he, someone's got to stand at. And then when you leave that hockey, they come onto that hockey. Mm. And uh, it was all poo-pooed at the time. Uh, you're an idiot, Burgess, you know. <laughs> but here well, we are, Shane, all these yeah. years later, and it's now accepted as standard. Yeah, well, I never, there's the exclusion zone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but on a, on a similar related note, gamesmanship on the hockey. Now, Rod Harrington will openly admit to doing this. He said he kicked Keith Della three times on one occasion during one match. Who were the worst for gamesmanship in your era? The the worst player for gamesmanship is uh, Peter Manley. Thought you might say that. Thought you might say that. And we all we all remember, don't we? The one person who took the bait was Adrian Lewis. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Peter Manley is an absolute. 24-7 wind-up merchant. I don't know why he does it. Mm. He seems to get a kick out of it. You know, he's a nice bloke, Peter. He's, uh, you know, we've had a few words over the years, but uh, he's a brilliant player. Mm. He's a nice bloke. He wouldn't do anybody any harm, but he's just got, he just, he's not, he seems to, he's not having any fun unless he's winding you up and it drives me potty. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the thing is, certain people took the bait with Peter Manley and yeah. I think if he knows he can get under you, he would do it. Uh, oh. the, the trick is to just get on and focus on your own game with him, I think. Yeah, yeah. You just sort of you just, you just have to ignore him. You have to have skin like a rhino, really. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's um, it, it's some... He never... I, mean, I played... He never done anything... Because um, I'm... What? My advantage was being deaf in one ear. Hmm. I expect over the years, I had people whispering sweet nothings to me up on the stage, but I didn't hear them. <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't really matter, you know. Did, did well, people like Rod or Eric ever wind you up then? Uh, no, no. I played Rod a few times on television. Rod was always really the gentleman, really. Mm. Um, Eric, uh, he, Eric could be a nasty piece of work, really. Uh, mm. he, he, uh, he, <laughs> he never had a good word for anybody. He, he was he, he used he he was the same. He used to have to put this persona on, mm. now, Mister Nasty, mm. you know. And you think, Eric, just for once, just for once, will you be nice? Mm. No, he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. Only in private with certain people, you know. Well, I, I think this is the thing. Towards what sadly turned out to be quite near the end of his life, he went on. I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. And we saw both sides of his personality there, didn't we? There were times where he could be very pleasant to the other campmates and so forth. You could have a perfectly normal conversation. There were other times where he was sort of playing little games with you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Total, total. Um, oh, I don't know. I just couldn't make him out, really. He just had to be rude all the time. He was just rude to you. Well, do you, you know what? Really? Even Phil would agree with you on this, Phil Taylor, because, of course, Eric effectively sponsored Phil for his first few years when Phil didn't have any money. You know, you mentioned toilet chain handles. That was one of the ways Phil Taylor made his living. He um, yeah. he worked in a factory and they made all sorts of bits and bobs, including toilet chain handles. And however much good Eric did for Phil, they had their fallings out, you know. They went for periods of months where they wouldn't speak at all. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I expect, um, I expect there was a lot of, because I thought maybe Eric, in the beginning, Eric was mentoring Phil, but he would, he probably didn't think, I bet he thought, I bet he thought, Phil, this bloke's going to be a really good player, mm. but he's going to get nowhere near what I've achieved. Mm. You know? mm. And then they started getting crossed. This bloke, and I bet that's where they started falling out, because Phil was getting a bit too good, you know. Yeah, well, he uh, let the yeah. genie out of the bottle, hadn't he? Yeah. <laughs> That, yeah. that, that was yeah. that was the thing. So 2003 then was your last major final. What do you think happened to yourself then? Because you went off the boil a bit, didn't you? 
Uh, I did, yeah, yeah. I was I was off the ball actually before that a little bit. Um, I just lost my mojo because mm. there, there was no money in it. I was I just couldn't. I didn't know what to do, so I, I went and got my HGV license, mm. and um, I thought, well, at least I can always work. Mm. Unfortunately, I picked a wrong profession then because driving a lorry all day and then trying to play darts in the evening or at weekends is uh, it's not good for you. But um, mm. uh, yeah, so so. I, I was working a lot, and then I just I thought, uh, and then then I got to that final, and I got actually got fifteen thousand pounds, which is the most I ever got for a final. Yeah, and um, but you know it, it, it didn't happen again because um, uh, the PDC they, they they I mean it's fair enough they got this strict um, they don't they don't have um, like the BDR they don't have special invites or wild cards or oh you got to that final so you can play in that they don't do that so. Hmm. You've you've got you have to earn your right all the time, and I wasn't in the system, so mm. yeah, I was so you know even though I made a final, I I was still not in their little echelon of uh, you know professional players. So because this it, was an interesting time, two thousand and three. Yeah. This was just the time Barry Hearn had taken control of the PDC. Uh, yeah. Dick Alex and Tommy Cox had worked very hard for over a decade to get it to a certain level. Barry Hearn was going to blow the whole thing up. I and mean, he went to the Circus Tavern for the first time and he said, I can smell money, was how he put it. Before yeah. you know it, he'd made an offer to take charge of the PDC and we know what happened next. If you had just clung on for a year or two longer and ridden the wave, you know, two years later, the Premier League darts had started. Yeah, it did, yeah. I mean, uh, I remember, always remember Rod Harrington saying to me, he said to me... Uh, because he was he was in the same boat. He was losing his game. He was on the slide. He had dartitis. Yeah, yeah. And and he um, he said to me, uh, Shane, you've got to stay in that top thirty-two. There's going to be a door that closes, and if you ain't in that door, it's going to shut. And you ain't going to get in. And I I did. I thought, nah, nah. And I slipped out. Hmm. And um, yeah. And I never got never. Well, there was one. I did get it back in once. We had a qualifier. They used to do a qualifier, hmm. and um, Wayne Mardell had just joined the. Uh, uh, PDC come over hmm. and uh, he was he was playing really well he was on form so we went to this qualifier down in Wales it was in, in Swansea yep. and uh, I beat him 6-0 in the final hmm. <laughs> he had the raving um anyway so that put me in the world match play and I thought this is it I'm, I've, I've got I've won a qualifier I've, I'm actually on the cliff edge here now all I've got to do is drag myself up hmm. who did I draw first round Phil Taylor <laughs> <laughs> You still have nightmares about him, I bet. Oh, it's only beat me 10 nil. Ouch. Oh. <laughs> now, to be and fair, that... if anyone else had beaten you 10 nil, I'd say that's a disgrace. But against Phil Taylor, there's no <laughs> disgrace in that. No, I've no, seen how no. he's beaten people in world finals. I remember when he beat Peter Manley in that world final, and Manley didn't even shake his hand. But yeah. um, again, he's, beat, he's done results like that against John Part as well on the big stage. So those score lines, they might look bad, but they're not bad when you're playing Phil Taylor, are they? No, no, not really, no. But mm. that was that was my very, very, very last chance to get a foothold. And uh, mm. so he absolutely bashed me and that, that was that was it. I was out then, out, that was it, done. And uh, I just carried on working and I just, I've always, you know, carried on playing and Mm. I've nicked the odd tournament here and there. I've had the odd thousand pound in these opens, you know. I won the Sheppey Open a couple of years ago, and I've nicked the odd. Yeah, I've played really well, you know. Yeah, but, but it's the yeah. consistency, isn't it? Is, is the yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. a bit bit of fun. Whenever I think of your name and I hear your name coming up in conversation, I can hear Sid Waddell's voice in my head, and the word yeah. roadkill is coming up. Yeah. 
<laughs> I'm going to let you explain this one. Well, uh, that was, well, I used to you know, say when I was in the PDC, well, um, see, Phil had a camper van and um, he used to uh, park his camper van. No one else had one. I don't know why, or they couldn't afford one. Mm. So I, I got a bank loan. I thought, oh, God, we can't have a camper van. This has got to be because you're saving on hotels and everything like that. Go wherever you want, go when you want. So I got myself a camper van, same as, well, a beaten up old one. It wasn't the same as Phil's. Hmm. I was a wreck, but um, travel around everywhere. Of course, uh, times were hard. So I used to take my air rifle and a fishing rod. And I used to go, if I was near the beach, I used to go fishing wherever I pulled out, I'd eat. Or I'd go, I'd go out at night and shoot a rabbit and I'd eat a bit of rabbit for breakfast before we used to get darts. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, I used to. Well, it's anything, anything you could find, really. So, it, what Sid? Because Sid used to go on and on and on about this in commentary that Shane Burgess yeah. into roadkill. There was <laughs> truth in it. Well, yeah, obviously, yeah, yeah. He's not. They're not. Um, they're not making it up. I used to. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it was free, free grub, wasn't it? I used to go to if I could. I, I don't remember. Remember, went to one. This is a true story. This is not in my book. Mm. True story. I was in Ireland, and uh, I fancied a Chinese. Mm. So I went up to the Chinese, and halfway there, I thought, I forgot my money. So I drove back in my camper van, and I saw a rabbit in the road. like just been, And I thought, that wasn't here on the way up. That must be just been run over. So I picked it up, and I thought, yes. So I saw the Chinese. I went back to the I skinned this rabbit, and I had that instead. <laughs> so that saved me uh, uh, about 12 quid for a Chinese meal that night. I, had, I was a flat rabbit. <laughs> you, you dart players, there's a few of you who do things like that. I, I know a story about Richie Burnett. He had some cornflakes, I think it was, in his hotel room one time, and there was no running water. The, I think the bathroom was down the corridor or something, and he oh. couldn't he couldn't be bothered um, walking down the corridor. There was someone in the bathroom or something. So do you know what he did? He took the, the, the lid thing off the radiator and filled it with the water from the radiator for his... <laughs> He probably did. I wouldn't be surprised. That is a true story, surprised. I gather. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all. But, but this, this is why I think uh, your book is so good, and Tony Horn has done a fantastic job as your ghostwriter, as I thought he would when I recommended him for this. Um, there's just so many stories about um, stuff that's gone on in your life. So we, we move on beyond darts. There's stories about that camper van, and another good friend of yours, a guy who is sadly missed, the late Reg Harding. Yeah, yeah, me and Reg used to travel. Not... Uh, we we do hotel. hotel. Uh, uh, we used to travel in my van, but we used to get a hotel. Mm. But we didn't sleep together in the van. Whatever, I could He wouldn't. Uh, he had a bad back or something like that. But uh, mm. we used to travel around together and play pairs together. And yeah, we had we had a good good time. He was a he was a great player, Reg. He Love was, and he's another one from the, the early years of the PDC that sometimes gets forgotten. Now, I I've got quite strong views on one particular aspect. In this time of plenty, when there's half a million pound prize money for the win of the World Championship and so forth, I think it's important now, as that generation of people who were involved in the PDC split is getting older and are no longer on the scene, whether it's the first wave, whether it's the officials, whether it's the second wave of which you were a part, I think now, personally, as they're now off the scene and they're getting older in some cases... In this time of plenty, they should not be forgotten, and the sacrifices they made in that period should not be forgotten. You're right. You're exactly, exactly right. Yeah, it's it's uh, like I said, like 
documented anything documented about darts in the 90s he, he, he's he, like you said he was like a big power cut, you know mm. and yeah if you can bring that to the forefront whether you've got a generation of players i actually had a go on um somebody on um facebook the other day said oh um, name the five players who have won over 20 odd games on the trot so they're saying oh peter Wright and um and um oh, Merton Van Gerwen and, and mm. so I got on there and I said, um, I won in 1998. I said, I won the Boston Open. I said, I won the Boston Pro, the Boston Open and the cricket singles all in one weekend. And that was well over 27 games in one weekend. Mm. And it all went quiet. And they all, and I know that I know all their brains were ticking over thinking, who is this? What is the Boston Open? You know, mm. and, I, and I came back and I said, that was a PDC ranked event. Mm. And I've won more games in one weekend than any of you players. Your is it? I said it's not your fault, but none of it's documented. You know. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. So so yeah. You're not getting the, the credit you deserve, and there are others who aren't getting the credit they deserve for what they achieved in the 1990s. But I'm of the view that players who were part of that, and even officials who were part of that, <laughs> if they're a little bit hard up at the moment and they're getting old and they need help. I don't think the PDC should forget that, or the PDPA for that matter, because people put their homes on the line to make the split happen and to make it a success. People remortgaged, people took loans out. This is big it, sacrifices. Yeah, it is. It is. People, yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, I put my, um, it cost me my, cost me a marriage, mm. uh, two or three serious relationships, and, mm. yeah, darts was, darts was everything, and it was, it was, uh, Everything else took a back seat, you know. Mm. And uh, yeah, yeah, I was chasing that pot of gold, and Phil had already run off with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mind you, the book. Whilst obviously you and I have talked a lot about the results and the split and everything that went on, and the period you were at your peak, around uh, about the time of the split and immediately afterwards. There's a lot of fun in your book as well, and I really emphasise this. There were some terrific anecdotes in there. How on earth you're not in prison? I got no idea. But <laughs> there really is, particularly when you were young. Um, the, the, the early chapters of your book, the first seven or eight chapters. You played, obviously you're from Hastings in Sussex, and you played Sussex League, but you felt you had to switch to Kent just to up your game and to raise your game. Yeah, yeah. Sussex has always been, I mean, I still play Sussex now, Hmm. and it's always a little bit of a a backwater. Their players don't travel. uh, There's some good players down here, but they like to be big fish in small pond, you know. Hmm. Uh, It's just that they just don't travel, Sussex players. And I thought, if I'm going to make myself uh, make anything, I've got to get out of here. I've got to get away from here mm. and start playing some, some decent players. You know, I'm not saying decent players, but players with a bit more ambition. You yeah. know, mm. and um, uh, yeah. So I thought, well, Kent's just next door. So I live in Hastings. So I'm I'm only about ten minutes from the border. Mm. So I thought, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, go to Kent. I wasn't. <laughs> I was a bit of a uh, uh, a bit of a leper at first. They didn't. They wasn't very welcoming. But, mm. Yeah, but I had to play me way into their good books, you know. And yeah. I, I did, yeah, you so, know. So that that was that was one of the things you needed to do. Uh, there's also great stories about cigarette smuggling and incidents of people being in the boots of cars. And I I, I certainly don't <laughs> condone people driving without a license. It's not a good idea. Don't do it, folks. But um, <laughs> you and your mates, you did sort of 
crossed the line to the wrong side of the law now and again, didn't you? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, well, like I said, everything took a back seat to the darts. I didn't care about the law or um, that was just a mere trifle. Mm. <laughs> it's just uh, you had to, I had to get where I had to get and go where I had to go. And, and, and that was it. That's exactly, uh, darts was, as you just live, eat and breathe it, you know. You know. There, there was a, one story um, about somebody in a boot of a car and somebody called Colin who wasn't really Colin. Tell us that one. <laughs> that one, yeah. Well, that was we wanted to go to the World Championships, which was in um, Jolly's nightclub in mm. Stoke, uh, Stoke-on-Trent. That was the, yeah. Uh, had to go. Four of us. Um, not. I, I was the really only one who was darts mad, but the others were, were just, just going for the adventure, really. So, mm. um, yeah, my mate ended up borrowing a driving licence. This is pre um photo card it was just a piece of paper then wasn't it yeah like your driving license just a green piece of paper mm. off of a bloke called colin my mate day of course we he forged all the paperwork in the name of colin and um, we got all the way to stoke played uh, watched all the darts we had a great time uh unfortunately i got a a, a bad bout of the wind halfway back <laughs> and, uh, they stopped the car and chucked me in the boot man handled me into the boot <laughs> Uh, I came all the way back from Stoke in the boot of the car, and um, the car stopped. I presumed about oh, I thought I was home. I mean, I've been in the boot about four hours. You were near enough home, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. And I just heard muffled voices, and then the boot opened, and there was a bloody copper stood there. <laughs> He'd stopped one of the blokes for a previous traffic offence. He he recognised him, mm. and. Uh, and he said, "What's going on?" And it was just me in the boot and a, and a petrol can and a rubber hose. We've been siphoning petrol. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and they had us in the police station for kidnap and oh, all sorts. And they were just about to let us go. And um, my mate Dave said, "Can I use the toilet?" So he went into the toilet. Of course, so the copper had to accompany him. Mm. And he's standing there using the urinal. And another copper came in who Dave plays football with. And he said, hello, Dave. He said, playing football this weekend. And he went, this other cop went, Dave? He said, your name's Colin. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and we got nicked. Oh, <laughs> and this book, there's a number of stories like that. It's absolutely, you should, even if you're not massively into darts, for crying out loud, buy the book, because there's stories like that all the way through it. Um, yeah. so, so that's fantastic. Um, tell me, Shane, did you ever appear on Bullseye? Uh, no, 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 never on Bullseye. Uh, no, they just, I never got rung for that. No. No, because no. I, I didn't think you did, because the final series of Bullseye, again, it was round about the time of the split. It was 94. So you would have just missed out on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I missed out on that as well. No. I definitely would have got a call. I mean, I was world number four at the time. I, de- I would have definitely got a call, but I just, it was all going on at the moment. And I think, uh, yeah, mm. it was, I think, um, one of the last ones, Kevin Painter was on it. Well, I think he actually won it. He won. He the, did. He won the uh, yeah. the bronze bully prize in the final series. I know that. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So I also remember, I won the British Gold Cup in '94 or '93, mm. and I went to the next county game, and it's a massive cup in a in a glass case, uh, and it, it's the best uh, trophy that the BDO have got, in my opinion, probably apart from the World Championship trophy, but beautiful trophy, mm. and I put it on the stage for the county game. Kevin Painter walked in and put the bronze bully on top of it. <laughs> well, do you know what? I, I know a bit of a story about this because there yeah. were rumours that bronze bully had gone missing after that final series and Kevin thought it would be his to keep. 
But a year or so later, I think it was Andy Wood, the guy who created Bullseye alongside the late comedian Norman Vaughan, wanted it back. And of course, uh, more than a decade later, about 2007, 2008-ish, Bullseye made a comeback for one series on Challenge as you may recall. Um, yeah, and yeah. Um, Dave Spikey was the main host for that series. Tony Green was still there, but Dave Spikey was the host. Unfortunately, you just slipped off the radar a little bit by that stage. And yeah, it was just yeah. that few years too late when they brought it back for you. Yeah, story of my life. Too mm. late here, too early there. <laughs> well, it, it, I'm afraid, it sounds harsh, but it has been a little bit like that, hasn't it? It has. If, you, if, know. if you were five years older than you are, you would have been playing uh, the England Internationals on the BBC. Uh, yeah. If you were, well, here we go, yes, a good place to end this on. If you were 10, 15 years younger, playing to the standard you were, you would have been yeah. reaching the latter stage of PDC events now, and you would be picking up five-figure sums regularly. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. It's a good job I'm not bitter and twisted, isn't it? <laughs> you, you can't help when you're born in life, I'm afraid. No, it's just no. one of those things you can do. How do you think these footballers feel who are around in the 60s and the 70s, who, who are living uh, living on benefits now, some of them, whereas they yeah. see players who are not, not as good as they were or what have you, earning 100 grand or more a week in oh. some cases, you know? Well, yeah, Stanley Matthews used to catch the bus to the game and mm. Ronaldo gets on the private jet to go and get his hair cut you know it's just a different time in it well yeah i'm i'm aware of footballers from that era well even as late as the 60s or the 70s were really struggling and relying on benefits now so there's plenty so you you can't help when you're born but life has gone on for you you're now with michelle aren't you yeah and you're uh you're about to move to saint helens now it's slightly delicate matter here does michelle know how close that is to wigan well, actually, um, where I am in St Helens, I'm actually quarter an hour from Wigan. I'm right at the top end, mm. right at the top end. Um, yeah, I actually, we've actually moved. She's up there at the moment, uh, and I'm keeping my job on um, down in Hastings for a while. That's why we're having the house done. Mm. And uh, so I went, we went. I took a week off the other week. Went up to meet her up at the house, and we got a bit of painting done and stuff like that. Mm. And um, they got that A one eighty darts shop in St Helens, mm. uh, which is a, a, one of the big dart. There's a few other dart shops, but there's a big one in St Helens. And I thought, well, I'll look. Seeing as I'm up here now, I'll look up where that is. Mm. Well, I put it on Google Maps, and it's only at the end of my road, isn't it? <laughs> 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 now, there's the a reason I mentioned Wigan, a very specific yeah. reason. I know you know what it is, but I'm going to yeah. let you oh, say yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Let you say yeah. it. Go on. Yes, yeah. yeah, it's, it's their main venue for. The, uh, we'll have the Q School there, mm. and and it's their main venue for all the uh, uh, pro league uh, matches. All the uh, yeah, so mm. yeah, I'm, I'm literally on the doorstep, and uh, this year I think I'm going to have another go, whether I'll get through or not. And the standard is is unbelievable. And oh, I'll you're be, telling me I know all about that. I know people yeah. who've tried it, and it's just well, yeah. take the, look at Glenn Durant for example. He, yeah. he obviously won three three world titles at the Lakeside, entered Q School and just about scraped in, didn't he? He just just. I mean, it, it's the it was the makings of a true champion. He he done it when he had to right on the last day, but mm. yeah, and he he he, he knew he realised how hard it was. You know, it's one slip and you're out. One slip and you someone will jump all over you. Mm. It's deadly, absolutely deadly. You know. And uh, you know, I, I did. I swore blind I wouldn't do it again. But since I'm on the doorstep, I might as well have another go. You, you know? might as well go for it. And the other thing to be aware of, I bet you already know this: the standard of local darts in that area is quite something as well. 
Oh yeah, yeah. The, uh, I, was, I was talking to the blokes in the dart shop, and they said uh, I mean, they got six divisions in their Super League. Mm. I mean, we've got in Sussex is one division of about six or seven teams. Yeah. You know, yeah. we've got they got six divisions in in the, it's their local. It's, it's amazing. Well, I, know, think, I think that isn't uh, Alan Tavern from that part of the world. Alan, well, where are where in St Helens? You Alan Tavern, you've got Alan Tavern Junior who's playing now, and you've got you've got Michael Smith. Stephen Bunting, Dave Chisnell. Mm. Oh, they're all played. Yeah, they're all, they're all around that area. Yeah, yeah. Well, house prices have gone up in St. Helens in the last year or so because um, Tony Horn used to drive there for work every day, and since he's abandoned it, the house prices have gone up. It's a high, <laughs> posh, posh standard of person there now. He kept saying to me, he kept saying to me, wherever you go, don't move to St. Helens, don't move to St. Helens. And I was like, it's a bloody lovely place. I don't know what he's talking about. I know Merseyside and all that area very well. I lived in Liverpool for three years. I was at university there. I know St. Helens a little bit. And yeah, you'll be fine. You'll enjoy it. Yeah, Uh, it's lovely. People are lovely. People. Yeah, yeah. You, you'll you'll be fine in that part of the world. So um, yeah, so there's a little joke there. Tony Horn, for those who don't know, used to work at Wish FM, the local station up there, um, and he used to drive into every day into work in St Helens. But he's, he's left there a while ago now, and he's the excellent ghostwriter for your book. How did you find working with Tony? What was that like as an experience? Uh, yeah, so it, Tony was in new te- new territory and all. He'd never done a uh, a light-hearted or comedy book. Like, mm. like you know, he, he he he, the last two or three books that he'd done have been very harrowing. You know about yes. the Raoul Moat and um, uh, Save One Child and stuff like that. Um, and he come out of there and he said to me, it was like a breath of fresh air mm. getting out of all that mm. morbidity. You know, and this is getting a bit light hearted. And we had some. I used to go up to my shed uh, and he'd he'd WhatsApp phone me and we'd do these like two three hour sessions. Mm. And um, it was all very good, very good, light-hearted, and yeah, yeah. I, I said, you know, he said, I've got to get inside your head because I want to write this how you're going to say it, you know. Mm. And I think he's, he's, you know, he's captured it pretty well. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, I, I think just because I speak to Tony quite often, I think he's got the darts bug now. He wasn't really into darts before this, but I think he's going to be watching a lot more of, more of it on TV in the future. He does watch it. He's watching it. He texts me every now and again. Mm. Who's going to win this one? I don't know. <laughs> he's got the bug, believe me. Yeah. I, I think he's going to be following it a lot more closely. I, I had to educate him a little bit about all that went on in the BDO-PDC split. Um, yeah. and, but he, he has taken this and run with it, and he's done an excellent job. Um, so to finish off now then, I'll just get your thoughts as we bring this to a conclusion. The state of modern darts. Now we're seeing half a million pound prize money. Um, we're seeing the one thing that bothers me, I think there is one downside, and that is the crowds we get now at some of the Premier League venues in particular. People are there in fancy dress. I've got nothing against that. But they don't always show the respect to the players that was there in your era, I don't think. No, no. Um Barry and the PDC, Barry and the PDC, they just seem to have this uh, this thing that let let people have a good time, let them get on with it. They don't. Hmm. They just seem to. I know they, they. I don't actually. I haven't actually been to one myself because I, you know I'm not an avid. Uh, I wouldn't sit in the crowd and watch it. It's just not my scene. But hmm. everybody goes. He's having an absolutely brilliant time. You can see they are. Hmm. But um, it, it's just yeah. They just under the impression that. Just, just let everybody. And I, uh, the one, the only one thing that does roll me is, uh, I mean, they're playing for a lot of money. These players, and then somebody they just don't take a dislike to the crowd. 
when they're all whistling when they're going for a double. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you, yeah. Shane. That bothers me as well because yeah. I, I think back, the, the first time I actually attended darts in person, it was the second year of the Premier League and it was at the, um, the Newport Leisure Centre because they used to use smaller venues to begin with in Premier League nights. Yeah. And that night I felt as though, okay, there are only about seven, 800 of us in the crowd, but I felt I was among darts fans. And then they moved it to um, the, uh, the bigger venue, now called the Motor Point Arena in Cardiff, which is much, much bigger, and you can fit thousands into there. And I've only been, I think, twice or three times in the year since. And every time I felt these are people who were just here to get drunk and hurl abuse. And I thought this is actually putting off the genuine darts fans. And I think that's a great shame because what little footage there is on YouTube of the old days in the Circus Tavern and the early days in Blackpool, they were... Oh yeah, they were they were having a good drink. Don't get me wrong, but they were respectful. Yeah, yeah. I think they're they're, they're treading a fine line at the moment. They, they've got to they've got to sort out uh, some sort of format where people can have a good drink and a good night. And but they've got to restore start restoring some order, hmm. or it's going to get a little bit out of hand. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think lines have been crossed in the last few years. I yeah. think back particularly to that one incident where somebody actually threw beer over Michael Van Gerwen. Um, at the, I think it was the first round of last uh, this year's World Championships, which yeah. started in December, ran into January. Uh, yeah. That that was totally unacceptable, uh, and it is a little bit off-putting when you're watching this on television. People booing and whistling when they're throwing for doubles. It, you are people who go there. I think you know you are watching world-class sportsmen. Yes, enjoy yourself, but do show them respect when you're there. That that would be my advice. Yeah, yeah, they, they, yeah, they say. Yeah, I, I bet they're in a bit of a conundrum, really. They got yeah, people. Uh, they've paid. I mean, it's a lot of money to go. They paid good money. Mm. They deserve to be able to have a drink and a good night out. But they've got to learn to um, respect the darts. Yeah, uh, and yeah. it's it's a strange thing, you know, because in the nineteen seventies into the early eighties, when the old News of the World tournament used to be on ITV, um, they used the bigger hall at the Alley Pally. Now the World Championship is staged in the smaller hall there now, but when it was even when it was in the bigger hall in the 1970s, far more people in there than are at the Ali Pali to watch the PDC World Championships these days. But there were thousands and thousands of people. Some of them would probably neither work nor want. Um, a lot of them had had a good drink, but yet that absolutely packed, showing the likes of Eric Bristow and Bobby George and Alan Glazier and so forth. Absolute maximum respect when they were throwing. There was yeah, I went to a few of those big big news of the worlds i went to a couple of them and mm. um uh it, it was brilliant it was you're right exactly right the main smoking so it was just a, a thick thick fog of of smoke mm. and people drinking beer uh yeah a lot of people but yeah they told sh total respect to the players mm. um yeah you got you got a, um the referee you know it's not a tennis or or snooker so they say oh shut up and mm. you shut up but exactly. at the moment, he says, shut up, and they get louder. <laughs> I know, and I, I think back to, even in the early days of the PDC in the 1990s when um, if Phil Taylor was throwing a show and shouted out, I remember one or two occasions where Phil pointed at somebody and pointed you out. I've seen, yeah. Phil, I've seen Phil do that. And you know what? Even as late as 2007, that absolutely wonderful final between Phil Taylor and Raymond Van Barneveld, the last one at the Circus Tavern, that sudden death leg... Sid Waddell on commentary said, you can hear vinegar sizzling on a chip. And that, that was ab absolute maximum respect in the Circus Tavern, eight, nine hundred people, whatever there were. 
They'd had a good yeah. drink by that stage because it was late in the evening. Yeah. New Year's Day 2007. But even then, absolute hush when they were throwing. You would not get that today, 12 years later. You would You would you wouldn't really no no if they had a game like that i don't know but yeah mm. it seems to be getting louder and louder i don't know how they're going to nip it in the bud but mm. yeah mm. yeah so so, yeah. so modern darts then where we are now 2019 michael van gerwin's had a bit of a wobble gary anderson we know he's got his problems rob cross seems to be finding his best again after a, a wobbly 12 months or so as indeed as daryl gurney now seems to be making regular finals yeah yeah they're um uh, a lot of the players are well. They're all they're all really e- equaling up. They're they're everyone's no one's scared of anybody anymore, are they? Mm. Since Phil's gone and um, Michael's shown that there's chinks in his armour, mm. uh, yeah, no one's really scared of anybody. So, mm. not if you're on a bit of form. It's your day. It's as simple as that. Because yeah. I think there's going to be an interesting dynamic now as we go into the autumn and the World Championship starts to appear on the horizon. Michael Van Gerwen still a little bit out of sorts. Gary Anderson not still not firing on all cylinders by any means. And then we see how Rob Cross came back into it um, at the World Match Play. Daryl Gurney's there or thereabouts. Glenn Durant, uh, okay, as we touched on earlier, he only just made it in via Q School. And it took him a while to find his feet in the PDC, but at the World Match Play in Blackpool, he showed just how good he is. This very, very interesting dynamic with what we got the World Grand Prix, one of your favourite tournaments coming up. We've got the uh, Grand Slam and then the Players' Championship, the ITV tournaments and so forth, heading towards the Ali Pali. This next few months, I think, is going to be fascinating. It is, it is. It's, 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 darts has never been bigger. It's never been more darts on the television Oh, if you're a darts fan these days, you know, like I said, there's a, there's a whole new generation out there. Mm. They're as mad on darts as they are football. You know, they're collecting mm. things, collecting shirts, darts, flights. It's 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 where it should be. You mm. know, it's it's a professional uh, game uh, played by uh, players that put a lot of time and effort into it these days. And mm. it's where it should be, you know, mm. simple mm. as that. Many thanks to Shane for his time, and you can buy Shane's autobiography, Everybody Gets 15 Quid, on Amazon, published by Wild Wolf Publishing. And it really is a good, fun read. If you're a darts fan, there's a lot in there about the darts scene of the 1990s and the early 2000s. And even if you just have a casual interest in darts, it's worth reading just because of the sheer number of hilarious stories that are in there. Thank you for listening.